God bless all of you this morning. Amen. So good to see everyone here with us today in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. We want to go to the Lord today in prayer, ask Him to bless this service. We know that He is here, He's already here, that we would reach out, that we would hear His voice, that we would release Him into our situations today, that we would receive of Him everything that He desires to give. Amen. He desires to give a whole lot more than than we think. He desires to minister a whole lot more than we think. There are a lot of reasons for that. We won't get into them here, but folks, those reasons are irrelevant. God wants to. He's just waiting for us to say, yes, let me do this. And He will. Praise God. So let's reach out to Him today. Let's let's expand our eyes of faith. Let's try to believe Him for greater and greater things. Because He is an infinite God, folks. And He is just getting started. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. I I am so thankful for You. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, that You reached down one day and revealed truth to me. That You led me to a place of repentance unto salvation. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful. Every day I'm thankful for Your so great salvation. For all that You've done for me. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for all that You have in store for us here today. The ministration of the Holy Ghost. The Word of God that will go forth in these services. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we would receive the Word of truth with joy and with gladness and with thanksgiving of heart. That we would be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Help us, Lord Jesus, to respond properly. Help us to receive all that You have for us today. To possess it. To take ownership of it. To use it in accordance with the Word of God and Your plan for our lives. I pray, Lord, above all else, that Your great and precious name would be glorified. Lord Jesus, we desire to worship and to praise the Lord our God today. We desire to give glory and honor unto the Most High God. You are so worthy. You are so absolutely worthy to receive all worship, to receive all praise, to receive all glory and all honor. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We delight ourselves in the Lord our God today, and we will rejoice in the God of our salvation. Hallelujah, Jesus. As the people of God, we have much to rejoice about. Thank You, Jesus, for Your many blessings, Your many benefits. Thank You, Jesus, for all that You've done for us, are doing, have yet to do in our lives. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. What an awesome, awesome God we serve. What a glorious God that we serve. Amen. If we could just get our eyes on Him this morning. Praise God. Everything else has to grow strangely dim. It has to. When I look at the sun, I can't see anything else. Literally. Praise God. Let's keep our eyes on Him this morning. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Our youth can be dismissed at this time. Amen. Last week we talked about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 26.18 says to open their eyes. Their eyes need to be open, folks. We teach a Bible study. We witness to someone and they are kind of glazed over. and Yeah. Their eyes aren't open. 
They've been blinded. We have to do everything that we can. We've we got to teach Bible studies. We have to witness. We have to do everything that we can do. But at the end of the day, we can't save them. We can't give them the Holy Ghost. We can't give them revelation. The Holy Ghost needs to reveal truth unto them. To lift the, the, the veil from off of their eyes. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Amen. The Gospel is so powerful. It's so powerful, folks. The Gospel saves us. It delivers us. It destroys all the works of the enemy. And it is to be freely given to others, just like it was freely given to us. We didn't deserve, the, we didn't deserve this. We didn't earn it. There's nothing that we did that, made, that qualified us to receive it over anyone else. It was a gift that was freely given. And so, it needs to be freely given. Amen. Praise God. Thank God for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Our daily devotions. There was, a, there was kind of an introduction that I found fascinating. Uh, Bethany, the town of Bethany, means both house of affliction and house of figs. I understand Jesus cursed the fig tree uh, that was in Bethany in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, he's teaching us both about speaking a word of faith as well as making claims. Just because the fig tree is in Bethany, the writer says, the house of figs does not mean that it is fruitful. Amen. I would, I would translate this by saying that not everyone that goes to church is saved. Not everyone that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. By their works, we'll know them. By their fruit, we'll know them. Amen. Are they producing figs? Or are they barren? Jesus endured the house of affliction so the church could, have, could live in a time of fruitfulness. Jesus was the seed that fell to the ground and died so that others might live. Don't despise the house of affliction in our own lives for it may yet turn into the house of fruitfulness. Amen. Those awful, horrible things that we go through, those may be the very things that lead us into a fruitful ministry that God has chosen for us. Amen. Day one, we are called to reach out to all people, not just our people. I have a funny joke uh, that happened at work just a little bit ago. Uh, one of one of my coworkers, some of our coworkers were standing around waiting to be dismissed after all the cleaning was done, and uh, we were wondering where the rest of the people were. There weren't that many people there, and uh, did they leave already? What are we still doing here? Um, but they were like, one guy was like, no, no. Richard took his people and went up to the training room, and and uh, they're doing some training. And Richard is Asian, and this guy is white. So, I said, what do you mean, you people? What do you mean, his people? What do you mean by that? I was joking around with him. I knew what he meant. <laughs> so, he's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I said, well, it's kind of a joke between us. 
<laughs> Talking about his people. But anyway, getting back to the message. The uh, Everybody's our people, folks. We're all of one blood. There are no races. There are no uh, subspecies of, of human beings. It's just human beings, folks. We have more or less melatonin than others. Okay, more or less hair. Uh, more or less muscle. More or less height. I mean, there's all kinds of differences. And we, we celebrate the differences. I'm glad you don't all look like me. And so are you. Amen. <laughs> but we're all the same, folks. We're all human beings. We all have the same basic needs. We certainly all have a need for salvation. Amen. First Peter 3.15, I've used that a lot. I love this verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But I've never seen uh, this verse in quite this light before. Uh, give an answer to those that ask. They're coming to us, asking us, what do you have that I don't? You've got something that I want. What is it? I have no idea. I don't have the first clue, but you've got something that is really, really, I want it. That should be happening. They should be seeing fruit. They should be tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Amen. Day two, the absolute awesomeness of God's Word. Complex and deep enough to answer the hardest and most profound questions of life. You can go literally as deep down as you want to go in the Word of God. And you won't begin to scratch the surface. The wisdom of God is infinite. It's very deep. You'll never, you'll never plume its depths, folks. You'll never ascend its heights. So you can go as high, you can go as deep as you want to in the Word of God. Don't worry about that. You're not going to find a bottom. You're not going to find a top. And yet, it's simple enough that a child can understand every important concept contained within it. How amazing is that? There's no other book like it, folks. None. Day three. We cannot understand spiritual things without God illuminating them to us. We touched on that just a little bit ago. Spiritual things must be revealed to us by the Spirit of God. I cannot, of my own wisdom, my own intellect, just do the work and discover truth. I can't. It must be revealed to me. It's too high for me. God needs to reveal these truths to me. He used an analogy of having our vision cleared up by new glasses. People today are receiving sight through bleeding-edge biotechnology. Some, people, some blind people are actually able to see because of, of this, this new medical technology. I don't understand the interface between biology and the, the technological aspects of it, but it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. God can and needs to adjust our vision and our focus from the temporal to the spiritual. It's so easy. It is so easy to get refocused on immediate needs, immediate temporal needs, situations that are going on in our lives, circumstances, 
that, that are, we're facing or are about to face. And, and we, we devote a lot of energy to that, and sometimes rightly so, but, but we can't, we've got to stay focused on the things that are truly important. The things that are truly important are the things of God. Kingdom things. Spiritual things. Eternal things. Those are the things that truly matter. Therefore, although Jesus is no longer walking among us in the flesh, He is still present with us through the Holy Ghost. He's still present in His body. Amen. The Spirit of God is resident within His body. And it is His body that is continuing His mission. We are to continue the mission that Jesus Christ started when He was on the earth. Amen. Christians. Christ-like. Like Jesus. That is our mission. Day five, we want things and we want them our way, don't we? <clears throat> Not only do we want all kinds of stuff, but we want it to happen our way. We want to get it our way. God is not bound to give us our answers in any particular way, or at all for that matter. He can say no, but He's free to answer how and when He chooses. He retains the Lordship. He retains sovereignty in His kingdom. And that's hard talk for, for some people to receive. I don't believe anyone here. But some people don't like to hear that. They'll amen it, but they, not with their lives, not with their choices. I'm quoting this verbatim from the book. He says this, The great but oftentimes frustrating part about depending on God is He does not owe us any answers or explanations. But His way is assured. He remains God when worldly kingdoms fall. He remains God when nations rise against each other. He remains God when you lose your job, your family is in disarray, or you feel alone. He is God. And He is really great at being God. He is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful answer the disciples were longing for and the one who belongs on the throne of your life as well. Amen and amen. Our Scripture text for today, getting into the actual lesson, is found in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 25-27. Ephesians 5, 25-27. We see how this is starting out, but that is not where we're going today. Maybe in a general sense. Ephesians 5, starting with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. We're going to be talking today about the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ. Ancient Israel had unique wedding customs during biblical times. Marriages were arranged years before the wedding ceremony and could even occur when the bride and groom were still children. The betrothal process involved in an agreement between two families. These marriages were not necessarily made for love, but the parents hoped that the groom and bride would love each other nonetheless. Marriages were often arranged to benefit both families. 
After initial consultation between the families, the groom's father paid a bride price to purchase the right to wed the bride to his son. Unfortunately, in the patriarchal culture of the ancient Near East, women were viewed as part of their father's or husband's property. It was Christianity that changed that, folks. Despite what you may hear out there today, it was Christianity. Uh, in addition to the dowry, the groom often presented a gift of his own to the bride. Got lost for a second. This gift became part of the property the bride brought with her into the marriage. When the terms and conditions of the marriage were agreed upon by both families, they formed a marriage contract or covenant, completing the betrothal process. Then the groom returned and built a room onto his father's house where he and his new bride would live as husband and wife. By this point, the groom and bride were legally considered each other's betrothed. From the perspective of the law, the betrothed couple were married, even though they had not yet had a formal ceremony or consummated their marriage. When Mary became pregnant with Jesus, Joseph, a righteous man, sought to put, away, put her away quietly and spare her whatever public disgrace he could. Divorce was required to break off an engagement. How shameful would it be for a betrothed bride to have a sexual relationship with someone else while her betrothed groom was away building them a home? The amount of social disgrace on Mary was tremendous. The marriage process of the ancient Near East is featured multiple times in Scripture. A few different times, Jesus used the historical background of betrothal and marriage to reveal theological truths. Paul also wrote to Christians about marriage, both to reveal theological truth and to ensure husbands and wives engage in healthy relationships. This will help us all better understand the engagement between Isaac and Rebekah. Amen. So marriages are a little different today. A little bit. A whole lot. Not only are they different in the fact that families generally aren't involved other than to hear, Hey, I'm getting married. Oh, okay. And different also in the fact that for literally any reason at all, they can end the marriage. We fell out of love. Yeah, I'll bet you did. You started living together. <laughs> you find out some things living with someone. <clears throat> anyway, this isn't a marriage conference. Um, but they're different. They're different, folks. Back in the day, it was an arranged marriage. It was an arranged con contractual agreement between two families. And this was the case for uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, as well. Abraham was around 120 years old when he sent Eliezer to secure a wife for his son Isaac. Now, as Eliezer was sent to Abraham's homeland in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day uh, southwestern Iraq, this was a journey, this would have been a journey for poor Eliezer of about 3,400 miles. No Amtrak, no United. Camel, Camel Express, LPCs, 
That's all they had. It would have taken nearly 170 days one way if he could get 20 miles in every day. Which he probably couldn't. People heading west on the... Uh, what trail was that? Oregon Trail? Uh they were they were they were happy to get ten miles every day. So twenty miles would be flying. That'd be screaming. Round trip would have taken just about a year. That's a big trip. Eliezer took ten camels laden down with supplies for the journey, as well as gifts that would pay the bride price for Isaac's future wife. Now consider that. 170 days out on the road with all this stuff you're carrying all by yourself. What are the chances that someone would pass by and say, I think I want those things. I would like to have those gifts. Chances of getting robbed on a 170-day journey carrying that much wealth would have been, in my mind, pretty staggering. Pretty assured. But nothing. Nothing happens. We don't, we don't hear anything about that. He gets to his destination. Still has everything. Praise God. Eliezer stops by a well after that 170 days where the women, the women would come out and collect their water in the evening. Okay, he prayed to God that he would give, God would give him a sign showing that he's chosen the right woman for his master's son. Eliezer was taking this very seriously. He was given a charge by Abraham, made him swear. He was going to do this. Genesis 24, 13-14 shows us that prayer. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass, that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Now, something that occurred to me early on, in my walk with God, as I uh, read this, is do you know how much camels water, how much water camels can drink? I looked it up. Conservatively, they can drink 30 gallons in three minutes. When necessary, they can drink 53 gallons in three minutes. Somewhere around there. In between there is probably an average. More than 30 gallons per camel. You know how long it would take to draw 300 gallons of water with those pitchers? That's a lot of drawing, folks. That's a lot of work. Just to offer that freely. In my mind, Eliezer was saying... If this happens, I'm going to know for sure. If she offers to draw for all these camels, I'll know for sure that this is from you. And as the account continues, Rebecca comes along and does exactly that. She draws water 
for Eliezer and for ten camels until they had all until they were all satisfied. Genesis 24:18 and 19 says, "And she said, Drink, my lord." And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. <clears throat> and when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. Again, that would have taken a long time. A lot of work. But Rebecca, Rebecca was not afraid to do that. Rebecca, apparently, was not afraid of a little work. So not only did God answer the prayer of Eliezer, but Abraham's as well. If we look back at Genesis 24, verses 3 and 4, we hear this. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, this is Abraham talking, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And where did he just happen to end up? Rebecca is a relative of Abraham. Unto his kindred. Amen. God controlling this from the very beginning. Rebecca's family, after the contract was agreed on, they'd agreed upon a marriage contract, uh, and so the family wanted Eliezer to stay. To, to tarry for a while. But he wanted to get going. And so they said, well, let's ask Rebecca. What does she want to do? Rebecca said, let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's get out of here. <laughs> she wanted to go. Let's leave right away. Now, we don't see in Scripture whether or not Rebecca ever saw her family again or not. It's very possible that this was their, their final goodbye, that they never saw each other again. Rebecca was leaving her family behind to join another family through marriage to a man that she had not met. I know, again, this seems very strange to us today in our culture, but that was common practice in this culture. Even though it may have been difficult for Rebecca, it wasn't so difficult and she wasn't so comfortable at home that she couldn't move to where God was calling her to go next. Amen. The servant maiden was willing to become the wife of the patriarch, whatever that would entail. The call to leave behind what is familiar, to follow God's plan, is a very common theme in Scripture. Abraham himself, when he was still Abram, in Genesis 12:1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. This idea of separation, this idea of separating ourselves from the known and the familiar and the comfortable, and taking us somewhere different, somewhere strange, somewhere that we're not comfortable, somewhere that we don't know what's going on, into the will and plan of God. There's something powerful about that, folks. There's something even, I dare say, necessary. 
Moses, Exodus 3 and 10, Come now therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, I don't know how comfortable he was on the backside of the desert physically, but after 40 years, I'm sure he was comfortable in his mind. I know the land, I know the terrain, I know my job, I know the, the sheep. I know what's going on. And now, 40 years later, this, this thing that was known at the back of his mind initially in Egypt comes back to the forefront. Now you're ready. Now I need to send you in. I'm going to separate you from this to go do what I'm asking you to do. David, 2 Samuel 7, 8, the, prophet, the Lord through the prophet speaking to David, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. A very humble beginning. A very obscure beginning. He was from the... the uh, oh my word. <laughs> Judah. He's in the tribe of Judah. Oh my word. All I could think of was Joseph. Not Josephites. <laughs> That's not right. He's from the tribe of Judah. All right. But other than that, he didn't have anything going for him. Nothing. He was the, he was the youngest son of an obscure family. Uh, nothing. But God saw him. And God was preparing him from a very young age for this very task. And when the time was fulfilled, when the time was, was ready... He called him to the forefront. I'm separating you from the sheep coat to do this now. The disciples, Luke 18, 28 through 30. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. We've separated ourselves from everything we knew, everything we had, so that we could follow you, Jesus. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children for the kingdom of God's sake, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Amen. The familiar brings security and safety because we know it and because we understand it. And we like that. Don't say you don't. We all do. I do. I like, I like knowing what's going on. I like having the lay of the land. There's a skit that uh, my wife and I have done. Uh, it's called Trust Fall. You know what a trust fall is. You, you fall back and someone catches you. Well, this skit involves uh, someone doing this with Jesus. And so this person is, you know, falling back and catching themselves. And oh, I'm trying, Jesus, I'm trying, but it's, it's just so hard. I, how do I know you're going to catch me? How do I know you're back there? And the skit goes on and on like that. And finally, the person falls back and Jesus catches them. And they're like, oh, this is great. Jesus, you caught me. And so she's falling back all the time now. And, and Jesus is catching them. And, okay, so Jesus says, okay, so it looks like we got this down. So then Jesus has the person stand and facing them and says, okay, fall back. And they're like, but 
Jesus, you're over here. How are you going to catch me when you're over here? you got to trust me. And the skit, of course, includes that they couldn't do that. But when Jesus is behind me, it's easy for me to trust him. I know what's going on. Cause and effect. I, I, I can follow it through in my mind. I know what's going to happen. But this, if Jesus is there and he's asking me to fall back this way, I can't, I can't put that together. So I'm completely trusting Him. And we're not comfortable doing that because we don't know how it's going to turn out and we don't know how He's going to come through with this. But folks, Jesus can do anything. Jesus is capable of anything. I can't do that. If I ask you to do that, don't do it. Because you're going to get hurt. But if Jesus asks you to do something like that, feel free to do it, folks. Because He'll come through for you every single time. It doesn't matter how crazy the request is, or dare I say the command is. It doesn't matter how crazy it sounds. Just do it. Do it to the best of your ability. I can't do that. Well, Move forward in that direction and God will enable you. When we can understand what Jesus is doing, we can trust Him. But when our understanding fails us, we don't know what Jesus is doing right now, then it becomes very difficult for us to trust Him. It becomes very difficult for us to obey Him. I think in every Christian's life, there is this time of separation. I think that's true in every Christian's life. Everyone that, that decides in their heart of hearts, this is what I'm going to do from this point forward. I'm going to serve Jesus Christ with my life. There is a time of separation where God separates us from the familiar and the comfortable and sends us out uh, on our hero's journey. Sends us out on our, our journey to become Christ-like. Into ministry, into, into uh, the kingdom of God. To working for Him. A time, a place where we begin to let go of the reins of our lives and begin to submit ourselves wholly and completely to Jesus Christ. Because that's really what it boils down to, folks. This separation, when He tells me to do this, when He tells me to separate myself, I can say yes. I can say no. I can say yes, but... I can say, let's hold off. It's my choice. I can choose to submit or I can choose to rebel, to disobey. When we choose to submit, that starts us on a journey. That starts us on a a wonderful, glorious journey. Living for God. Every time I've chosen to rebel, not only does it not end well, but I'm farther away from where I should be now. I should have been going in this direction, but I wanted to go in this direction. So now it feels like any way in my spirit that i got to go back and then 
go the right way. Please remember, folks, when Jesus is asking us, commanding us to do something, He's leading from the front here. He's not behind us, pushing us. He's already been here, folks. He's already gone before. He understands exactly what your, uh, what your conflictions are. He understands exactly what's going on in your mind right now. But He submitted every single time. He did everything without sin. That separation has to happen. It has to take place. And when it does, when it does, that starts us on this wonderful journey. Amen. Jesus came to find a bride for Himself. Now in Revelation 19, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And we see this analogy in several places in Scripture. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, in the very beginning, when God instituted marriage, a man shall leave his mother and his wife and shall cling to his wife, they, the twain shall become one flesh. When he instituted that, that covenant relationship, that it was a, a type, it was a representative of something that was already in the mind of God. It was to represent His relationship with His people. We can see it all through the Old Testament. What did He call them when they rebelled against Him, when they worshipped other gods? He didn't necessarily call them rebels. He called them whores. Your whoredoms. Why would He use that word? Because of the relationship that he had with his people. He considers himself betrothed, folks. He considers himself uh, in that kind of a, a covenant relationship with his people. We see Jesus' first and second coming referred to in wedding terminology. During Jesus' first coming, the Father paid the price resulting in the gift of salvation to the bride. And because of Jesus' first coming, the church is His betrothed. During Jesus' second coming, He'll celebrate His marriage banquet with His bride as they come together to abide with one another forever. Between now and then, He's gone to prepare a place for us. John 14, 1-3 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe... You believed in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Again, we're getting this in, in, in wedding terminology. He's going to prepare a place for us. That's what the, the bridegroom does once they're betrothed. And when it's ready, He's going to come and receive His bride. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that day? The hope that we have in God. Christian marriage is significant because God chose to use marriage to reveal His love to us. 
We'll expound on our uh, scripture text here for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, every one of you in particular shall love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. So again, we see very plainly here that our marriages today, my marriage with my wife, is a representative It's a representation of Christ's relationship with His church. So knowing that, understanding that, understanding how Christ deals with His church, how Jesus loves His church, what He's done for His church, understanding that, how ought I conduct myself within my marriage? When someone comes from the outside, and observes my wife and I interacting. What should they see? I am to represent Jesus in this marriage. I'm not Jesus. We all understand that. But I am, I am to represent Him in this covenant relationship. So when someone observes us fighting and arguing and, and bickering, is that what Jesus does? That's what his bride does. We understand that. His bride isn't supposed to do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus loves his bride. He loves his church. He's done everything for his church. Our marriages can be one of the most powerful witnesses to others of God's love for us. If you're married, folks, I understand uh, some. there are some that, that have unsaved spouses. I understand that. But our marriages are supposed to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. That's what it's meant to do from the very beginning. Jesus' relationship with His people is supposed to be reflected in my marriage. And it can be a powerful witness, folks. Dr. Jim Littles, apparently a professor emeritus at Urson Graduate School of Theology, often humorously states, and I quote, Be careful about griping to Jesus about His church. It's His lady and He's crazy about her. Unquote. <laughs> Kind of puts things in perspective, huh? 
you want to come talk to me about my wife, I'd like to hear some good things about her, please. Amen. Jesus is the same way. We learned in an earlier lesson that He is a jealous God. He is very jealous for you and for me. Amen. We often fail to live up to our calling, which is to be without spots, wrinkles, and blemishes. Nevertheless, we aspire to this high calling, just as husbands and wives aspire to love their spouse, despite hurt or fear of rejection. We understand our marriages are not perfect because neither one of us are perfect. It's a work in progress. When, uh, when my wife and I were going through marriage counseling, we, we heard of the analogy of the triangle. Husband, wife, and God up here. And as we both get closer to God, we get closer to one another. I thought that was pretty cool. I haven't forgotten that. So the closer I get to Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to one another. So once I become Christ-like, we're going to have a perfect marriage. Amen. Looking forward to that. I know my wife is. (laughs) Can you hurry up? (laughs) Jesus does not love His church because it's perfect. Because we're not. Just like we don't love our spouses or each other because we're perfect. We do have to allow Jesus to heal us and grow us into a state of perfection. A bride without spots, wrinkles, or blemishes. Amen. He is bringing us on unto perfection. Let's let Him do that. Whatever method, whatever path He's chosen for us. Amen. It's our desire to be Christ-like. It's our desire to accurately represent Him to this world. To be a reflection of His image to this world. Amen. This world is not our home. Thank God for that. God makes all things new. We understand that when we came to the Lord, He made me a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what Jesus does best. He, make, he does everything best. But He makes all things new. God will make a new heaven and a new earth one day. One day I'm going to receive a new body. Not this one. This one's going to be dust. I'm thankful for the body that God has given to me. I try to be a good steward of it. But I'm looking forward to my new body. Because this one is starting to get some miles on it. Not too many yet, but we're just we're just starting to, to see a little bit of wear and tear. Amen. Since we're born again, we are citizens of a hev- heavenly kingdom, not one of this world. Again, this world is not our home. It was, it used to be, but it's not now. I've been called out of this world into an heavenly. Thank God. I'm a pilgrim, I'm a sojourner, I'm a wayfarer, like Eliezer, seeking a destination. 
Or like Abraham said, seeking a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Amen. That's what we're looking for. But while we are here, folks, we must live to glorify God, make disciples as we make our way from here home. Amen. Paul said, I'm a straight betwixt two. I didn't understand that the first time I read it. But boy, I understand it today. Yes, sirree. I'm ready, folks. I'm not suicidal or anything like that, but God wants to take me home today. Man, I'm ready to go. Let's do this. Like like Rebecca. Let's go. I don't want to tarry. <laughs> Let's go now. Amen. In the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids, uh, we see another analogy of a wedding, a wedding ceremony. These ten bridesmaids were friends of the bride or, or friends of the groom or maybe even both. Uh, the bridegroom was delayed. But only five had brought additional oil for their lamps. We understand the, the account. The foolish bridesmaids go into town. They buy more oil. And when they come back, they find the door locked. And the parable of this story is found in Matthew twenty-five, thirteen. Jesus says this, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. He is coming as a thief in the night. In a time, an hour, a day that we know not. And so it behooves us, folks, to be at all times ready. When He does decide to come back, He'll come back at the perfect time. At His time. And when He comes back, folks, we've got to be ready. We've got to be ready. Get oil today. Make sure your salvation is secure. Make sure you're right with God. Do whatever you need to do, folks, to be assured of your salvation today. We're not promised tomorrow. He may not come back tomorrow, but I might die tomorrow. I don't know. Nobody knows. But whenever that time comes, I want to be ready to meet Him. That means I've got to walk circumspectly. That means I've got to conduct myself in a manner behooving a Christian, a son, a daughter of the Most High God. Amen. I can't go out and do whatever I want to do and expect i got some time to repent later. It may not work like that. God's mercy is available to all people today. Thank God for that. And as long as the Lord tarries, that mercy will be available. But when the ark of the door shuts, folks, it's shut. Bridesmaids came and that door was shut. It wasn't going to open. I've got to be ready. Amen. In conclusion, another of Jesus' parables that predominantly features the betrothal and wedding customs of biblical times is the parable of the wedding feast found in Matthew chapter 22, 1-14. This parable used Israelite betrothal and wedding customs to explain the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. 
The historical cultural context of betrothal and wedding customs is necessary to appropriately understand this parable. This parable featured a king who prepared a lavish, sumptuous wedding feast for his son's marriage. However, none of the invited guests attended. The king sent out his servants to the guests, but they either ignored the servants or killed them. The king was furious. Instead of wasting the feast, he bid his servants to invite, quote, both bad and good to the feast. While the king was touring his banquet hall brimming with guests, he spotted a guest who was not dressed appropriately for the wedding. The king confronted this man about his inappropriate attire, and the man was speechless. The king ordered his servants to bind the man and throw him into outer darkness. Jesus concluded the parable with a chilling statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus appealed to the wedding feast to explain certain aspects of the coming kingdom of heaven. The king is God. The king's son is Jesus, the son of God. Are we Trinitarians? No. No, we're not. But it's amazing that Jesus spoke these words. That Jesus used this this language all the time, referring to himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man. When he said, I do always those things that please the Father. Yeah. So we're 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 not preaching Trinity here. We're still oneness. The everlasting Father is still the Son of God. Amen. The guests who were initially invited but later attacked the king's servants were the Jews. The guests who were later invited were the Gentiles. The man without the wedding garment was an attendee who had not come prepared for the feast. Jesus demonstrated that both bad and good will be coming to the banquet, representing the many who are called. However, others came prepared for the son's wedding, even though they were not originally invited. Those who were prepared represented the few who were chosen. We should all put on the wedding garment through God's beautiful plan of salvation and attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. In that day, we will finally be be with the one who paid the price for us, built a home for us, and came back for us. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for all that you have done, are doing, and have yet to do in our lives. I am most grateful, Lord, for the plan of salvation, that you established a covenant relationship with me, that I am betrothed to you in covenant relationship. And one day you're going to come get me. You're going to come get all of us and bring us home, the place that's prepared for us. Oh, hallelujah. I'm so thankful for that day. I'm so hopeful for that day. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would receive these truths today, that we would continue to receive the truths uh, contained in the Word of God. Let your name be blessed, glorified, magnified in the remainder of our service. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much. We'll take a break and be back at a quarter to.